This is They Create Worlds, Episode 64, The Rise and Fall of Infogram, Part 1. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hey, hello. Before we delve into the rise and fall of Infogram, I'd like to inform everyone of something that we're launching. Specifically, we are launching a Patreon account. That's right. We certainly hope that all you listeners out there have been enjoying the content that we have been consistently delivering twice every month for the past uh getting close to two years now is it past two years oh, oh yeah it's, it's past, past two, two years. years yeah wow time flies for uh two and a half years now we would like to invite all you happy listeners to i guess uh help defray some of our costs it's not like we're going bankrupt putting this thing together but we do have costs hosting costs and production costs We also have a lot of things we'd like to do to expand the podcast, both in terms of the technology we use to bring it to you every two weeks and also in terms of maybe even going out and doing even more research than we already do to come up with interesting new topics and interesting new historical anecdotes you don't hear anywhere else. So we are launching Patreon. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that we're going to have paywalled content and everything absolutely not uh the podcast has always been free and will continue to be free and at least at this point that may change we're not even going to do any bonus content for the listeners and as a result we're we're not asking for much we're not asking for people to suddenly give us fifty dollars an episode or anything though you're you're welcome to if you love us that much i guess but if you uh listeners can throw a buck or two our way uh it would Sure go a long way to uh, continuing to improve the quality of the podcast. We have our whole spiel, of course, on the Patreon page itself, which you can find on Patreon under the name They Create Worlds, just like the podcast. Certainly no pressure to do anything about this. We'll keep bringing you the same high-quality content twice a month either way, but if you like what we're doing and want to help us out a little bit, certainly encourage you to maybe throw a couple bucks our way. And with that said, we will now delve into... The Rise and Fall of Infogram. Infogram is one of the more interesting companies that's come along in the history of the video game industry. It's French, which is a bit unusual. Uh, Today, really, only Ubisoft is left amongst the big French companies of the 1990s. But as I think we talked about previously in one of our episodes, there was this brief period of time when these French companies were becoming very big, very important, and very powerful relative to some of the other companies that were out there and were slowly coming to dominate, actually, the computer game industry, at least, and parts of the video game industry as well. And Infogram was kind of at the head of this wave of companies, very briefly became the number two third-party publisher in the entire world, and then just as suddenly and very spectacularly fell apart. They're still around today. We talked about them in our Atari brand episode because, of course, the company that was formerly known as Infogram is now Atari. Not that Atari, but kind of that Atari. (laughs) Yes. 
but they're still around today, sort of. We're not going to cover the recent years all that much because there's not much to say at this point. Kind of just look back at this company that rose to such great heights and then uh, fell very far. All the way down. So since this is a French company, how did they get their start? So the main mover and shaker behind Infogram was a fellow by the name of Bruno Bonnell. Bruno was born in Algeria in 1958. Algeria was a former French colony back in the day. His family, though, moved when he was eight years old to the city of Lyon in France, which is the second largest city in France after Paris. It's a pretty big business city itself. Not as big as Paris, but they do all right. He's definitely a very charismatic and magnetic figure. He's very similar to a Trip Hawkins or to a Steve Jobs and that he has a very charismatic way of going about his business and he can really get you to believe that what he is doing is the thing you should be doing. So definitely a very colorful character in video game history. One of those people who has one of those reality distortion fields around them. A little bit. That reality distortion field allowed him to keep Infogrom going with himself at the head of it probably a lot longer than he should have been able to under normal circumstances. Though in the end, he was finally forced out of the company during its period of difficulty, which we'll obviously talk about. He was very smart, but very kind of aimless. I mean, he graduated high school at 16. Very, very strong in mathematics. Very, very strong in science. He just kind of didn't really know what he wanted to do. He kind of fell into chemistry in school. And then after his period of mandatory military service, because they had that in France, he ended up at a a surface treatment company in plastics, you know, a a chemistry job, chemical engineering job. But he kind of hated it. (laughs) He was not a big fan of it, but he didn't really know what else to do. Then he got caught up in the very beginnings of the French computer industry. There was not much of a French microcomputer industry. Like the rest of Europe, they primarily imported British computers. The British were kind of the dominant computer maker in Europe at that time. But there were a few companies that were trying to launch microcomputers in France as well. Uh, And one of those companies was Thompson, which was a very venerable company in France that decided to create a computer called the T07. When they did that, they put out a call for software applications for the machine. And uh, Bruno heard about this somehow. I don't know exactly. He decided to throw his hat into the ring here and come up with some software for Thompson. So that was kind of his introduction to kind of this world of microcomputers. And then he had a friend from high school named uh, Christopher Sapé. Sapé was now working for Texas Instruments in France. But he was kind of caught up in this whole emerging microcomputer thing as well, both the homegrown stuff and the stuff coming in from Britain. And he actually received an offer to write a book about programming on these new computers. He decided that he needed some help on writing this, and so he contacted Bonnell, and they basically decided to do this book together. It was a book on programming in BASIC. 
1982, the two of them released this book, and it does okay. Uh, they make about $10,000 off of it, which is not bad for something that's, I think, fair to say is probably a little niche. So they have this $10,000 now, and they're like, well, what are we going to do with this? And they decide, well, why don't we create a computer software company? Why don't we do this for a living? So that's what they decide to do is form a company uh, in the suburbs of Lyon to do computer software. At first, they wanted to call it uh, Zeboob Systems, Z-B-O-U-B Systems, which uh, kind of sounds like a uh, Zeboob <laughs> in a very bad French accent. They were talked out of doing that <laughs> for obvious reasons. To come up with a name, they actually just created a random word generator. So there is no great significant meaning behind the name Infogram. Just random word generator, spit it out. <laughs> it just took two bits of words and slapped them together. So they got Infogram as the name of the company. They, they were fine with that. They did that. So in 1983, with the proceeds from this book that they wrote, they established the company Infogram. They chose a mascot for the company kind of as part of their logo. They did this far more deliberately than they chose the name. They chose the armadillo because the armadillo was a creature that has survived, evolutionarily speaking, for millions of years. It has that protective shell. It's able to survive in the harshest of climates. And it's just a solid creature that has lasted through time. And they saw themselves as a company that they were hoping would last through time as well. And so they chose the armadillo as kind of a resilient creature to be their mascot. I mean, they didn't have like a big cartoony mascot or something, just the armadillo. They had a lot of trouble getting financing. I mean, they had some of their own money to put into it from the book, but they were having trouble getting banks to finance this thing. I mean, this was the very beginning of the computer software industry in France. They're a few years behind the United States. This is about the same time that things are getting serious in England, too, though even in England, there's a little bit of a head start. But this is kind of right at the beginning uh, because the first French computers are coming out and now the first French computer software companies are coming along. So it wasn't something that banks were necessarily willing to finance. And this is kind of going to be a theme for Infogram throughout the first decade of its history. They did get a little financing at the beginning, but they're going to be plagued by money problems for a long time. And a lot of the reason that they have the money problems is because banks in France don't have a lot of faith in this business. They're not going to put money into this business. And unlike, say, in Silicon Valley, you don't really have the venture capital option. So that's just not something that really existed in Europe at the time. They start this company, and it's not strictly a game company at this point, though games are always part of the plan. But they figure that they'll do software in all sorts of areas, not just games. Business software, accounting software, educational software, entertainment sure. software. Sure, sure. You know, the, the full gamut. Though, as time goes on, obviously, it's the games that work. So they do games. The very first game that they release is called Autoroute, which basically means highway in French. It's a Frogger clone. I mean, there's no other way to put it. They, they clone Frogger, <laughs> which is a way that a lot of guys got started back in the day on computer games is take a popular arcade game that you enjoy and, uh, you know, make a clone of it on the home computer. It does all right. You know, they do that. They do a few other games. 
it's kind of going okay, but it's not going stellar. They do hire a few more people. The most important person they hire and a person that becomes important uh, at the company over the next couple of decades is a fellow named uh, Tomas Schmieder. Bruno actually meets him on a train <laughs> when he's like going to or from a rugby playoff. And I guess they get to talking or whatever, and you know he learns about the company and everything. And so they end up hiring uh, Mr. Schmieder to be the finance guy. Uh, he may not have been formally the CFO at that time. They might not have had that title, but he was the guy that was brought in to run the finances. And he's really as much responsible for the success that Infogram had as Bruno is, because Bruno had the vision. Bruno was the guy going out and growing the company and having all these big dreams. And Schmieder was kind of the money man and the guy making sure that the books balanced, at least uh, as long as they did balance, because we'll see, (laughs) that didn't really last. But, you know, Schmieder was just as important to Bonell in the growth of the company, absolutely. So it's really the three of them that are the main driving force behind the company. Yeah, I mean, Sape kind of fades from the picture. I don't know exactly when he left the company, but Sape, I think, fades into the background pretty quickly. It's really Bonell and Schmieder that are the driving forces behind Infogram over kind of the first couple of decades of its existence. The real breakthrough... The first breakthrough, there's a lot of peaks and valleys in the Infogram story, but the the first real breakthrough the company has is in 1985, when the French government starts making a real push for computer education. So Infogram creates a program called Le Cube Informatique, the information cube, that is kind of a basic introductory suite of programs with a book included to kind of help students learn how to use these these computer things that are coming along. The French government actually includes uh, this product, Le Cube Cube Informatique, on a list of recommended software programs for schools, which really spurs sales. And really kind of gets the company going. So by 1986, Infocom is still a small company, but they're doing pretty well. You know, they've got some games going on. They've tried dabbling in other areas, and now they've got this educational thing. This is where kind of the first time that Bruno starts getting ambitious. Bruno Bonell is very ambitious. He really wants to dominate this industry. He doesn't just want to be another small player. He wants to be the player. And so now that they've got some money coming in, they get some investment and they start acquiring other companies in France. They acquire a company called Cobrasoft, which was a maker of kind of strategy games. Not a major developer by any stretch, but they're growing out. And then they acquire another company called Air Informatique which was actually founded by a musician, a French musician named Philippe Ulrich and uh, another guy named Emmanuel Vio. Philippe became very excited by this emerging microcomputer thing and felt this was something that he really wanted to get involved in. And so he had founded this company, Air Informatique, which was kind of struggling along a little bit. And so Infogram ends up purchasing them as well. So Infogram is already on its way to becoming kind of the premier 
publisher in France, even though at this point that doesn't necessarily mean much. The French industry is still very small at this point, but already Infogram is starting to gobble up the smaller companies around it and turn into something bigger, which is going to be a theme of the company (laughs) once again throughout this entire episode. And it just so happened that Air Informatique was putting the finishing touches on an adventure game called Captain Blood that was very much unique for its time. It wasn't really all that similar to some of the adventure games that were coming out at this time in, say, the United States from companies like Infocom or Sierra or whatnot, because kind of the main thing is the character is is on the spaceship and there are these clones. He's a programmer that ends up through circumstances on this spaceship, and then he ends up getting cloned on this spaceship, kind of a series of unfortunate events, and he has to figure out how to find and destroy these clones that have been accidentally created. To do so, he has to interact with the aliens that are on the spaceship. There's this whole icon-driven language, and you kind of have to figure out how to communicate with them using this icon-based language and whatnot. So it's kind of a, a unique premise, not the kind of thing that was often seen, especially in those days. Sort of a little combination between Myst and an adventure game, in a traditional sense anyway. Yeah, 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 a little bit, absolutely. It was kind of born like so many of those games were at that time out of kind of the frustration with the parser. This idea that you often enter commands and all you get back is, you know, I don't understand or what do you mean kind of thing. He wanted to create a system where you can have a conversation with another character and it actually flows and you don't get these I don't understand moments that kind of take you out of it. And so that's why he had this kind of icon driven thing and this whole method of communication and communication was kind of central to the idea of the game. So it is an adventure game, but it's not so much puzzle and inventory driven like the American games are. I mean, it's it's kind of a very uniquely French creation. It's kind of inaccessible for some people, especially in other countries, but it ended up actually selling pretty well, especially in France. It was mostly done when Infogram bought Air Informatique, but it was finished under Infogram's watch. Infogram wasn't really that sure that this was going to be much of a thing, just because it was so different and Infogram was a little more commercially minded, but it actually ended up being a pretty significant program. It's far more significant in France than it is in other parts of the world, though it did get some releases elsewhere. And that was a game that did surprisingly well, which was kind of important because in this period, Infogram is is really starting to struggle. We're talking 1988 now because as will become a recurring theme, they've expanded. They've been buying these other companies. And it turns out that they're starting to overextend themselves. Mainly because, as we said, Bruno is very ambitious and wants to expand and become very dominant. And the only way to really do that is to buy, buy, buy. (laughs) Absolutely. Basically what happens, uh, and it really is kind of out of Infogram's control, but they have a couple of bankruptcies that happen in other companies. One of their distributors goes bankrupt, a retailer goes bankrupt, and they end up being owed a lots of money from these companies that have gone bankrupt, which puts them in an untenable position because they've been spending a lot of money to acquire other companies, and they haven't had a lot of success with some of their recent games, Captain Blood aside. 
So in 1988, they really end up in bad shape. And it looks like there's a very real possibility that they are going to go out of business. To save themselves, they actually turn to an American company, Epics, which we haven't done an episode on, but we've talked about here and there in, the, in other contexts. Epics in this period of time was relying very heavily on European countries both in Western Europe and even in Eastern Europe, in Hungary, to provide a lot of their content. I think they discovered just a little bit sooner than the rest of the American industry did that you can get pretty decent software at a pretty darn cheap cost by going over and sourcing it from Europe and then bringing it over to the United States. So they were doing a lot of that kind of thing. We talked about, just in our litigation episode, how they had brought over international karate from Britain and, you know, then got into that uh, legal tussle with Data East. But they were doing a lot of that, bringing over top tier games from countries over there and then releasing it in the United States. So they were very dialed into what was going on in Europe and Infogram had had dealings with them. So Infogram, Bonell turned to Epics to save the company and actually wanted Epics to buy the company. And Epics was interested. Epics was all ready to do this. It was even announced in the newspapers at the time, in the American newspapers at the time, that Epics was going to acquire Infogram. And then the board at Epics got cold feet. I mean, it was a done deal. I mean, as far as Bonell was concerned, they had basically shaken hands on it. It was a done deal. But then the board refused to approve it. I don't know exactly why, but during this period of time, Epics itself was running into some serious financial difficulties because. They were plowing all of their money into a hardware project called the Handy Game, which eventually became the Atari Lynx. So they were bleeding cash like crazy. They would actually file for bankruptcy just a year or so later. And so at the last minute, the deal is off. Infocom is not going to be bought out by Epics. But they still have this major financial problem. They do, and they get saved in the short term. It's going to be rough for a few years, but they get saved in the short term when Bruno is at a a trade show in the United States, and he sees this strange new company called Maxis that is trying without much success to interest publishers in this strange new game called SimCity. That wouldn't be popular at all. Broderbund finally ends up distributing it in the United States. Maxis publishes as an affiliated label of Broderbund, but they don't have anyone in Europe. And so Bruno jumps on this product and says, we'll be your distributor in Europe. And so Infogram releases SimCity on the European continent. And I don't think Bruno necessarily knew that this was going to be as huge as it was either. But obviously SimCity, as we know, becomes a very big deal. And Infogram is the company that is moving it around Europe. And so that provides them some real help to get on their feet here (laughs) during this difficult period. They're also starting to have more success with adaptations of French comics. The Francophone world, I'm not just talking about France, but I'm talking about even more significantly Belgium nearby, has a very fine tradition in. Comic books, probably the finest tradition in Europe. Tintin, Adventures of Tintin, is a Belgian comic. 
asterisk, which is not all of that well known in the United States, but is huge in Europe, is a French language comic. There are a few others as well. And Bruno had been a fan of French language comic books for a long time, you know, since he was a kid. So he was starting to acquire the rights to create games based on some of these franchises. So they release a Tintin game that does pretty well in France. They release a simple strategy game with a simple strategic mode with arcade action minigames called North and South that is an American Civil War game. But it's actually based on a French comic called Les Torniques Bleus. So even though it's the American Civil War, it's actually a French thing. And that game does very well. And so kind of SimCity helps them a little bit. These other games like North and South and Tintin on the Moon, I think it is, become modest successes. Captain Blood's doing okay. So even though they're really struggling, they're kind of just holding on. And then they get another big break when Sega actually comes to them to create some software on the Genesis because Ken Balthaser is now the VP of product development at Sega, at Sega of America. And he was a producer at Epix. And he was the main guy at Epix that was liaisoning with all of these European companies to create computer game product for Epix. So when Ken Balthaser went to Sega, he started leveraging all of his European contacts that he already had to create product for Sega and for the new Sega Genesis. So they get a contract with Sega as well to create a Mickey Mouse game, not Castle of Illusion, the big one that was done in Japan, but another Mickey Mouse game focused around the movie Fantasia. That game comes out in 1991, and that's another game that kind of helps keep Infogram going in this period where they're quite frankly not sure they're going to make it, but they've got just enough going on between all of these deals to kind of keep going. The thing that finally really saves them and finally puts them in a viable financial position is an agreement they end up making with Philips Interactive Media. Philips is the big Dutch electronics conglomerate. We've talked about them before in several contexts. During the late 1980s and early 1990s, they were focusing their attention on what they thought would be the future of multimedia in the home, the CDI. Which came with such great games on it. Right. It was such a strange situation because Philips saw it first and foremost as an educational device. This is the period of time when multimedia was a buzzword that was really centered around education. It was the idea that you could have an interactive encyclopedia where you could look up Dr. Martin Luther King and then you could click the play button and you would have the I Have a Dream speech play at you. Or you could have an interactive field trip to the Smithsonian or to the San Diego Zoo or something where you're guided around and can see the exhibits with high quality images and and video and whatever. Multimedia was going to change the way we consumed content. It wasn't going to be about games. Turns out that the multimedia approach was a very good approach, but you needed this little thing called the internet to make it work. But you didn't have the internet. (laughs) No, this is back in the early 90s when 
And Carter was king. Exactly. And even before that, because they're starting this project in the in the 80s. So this is a non-networked kind of solution where you're putting everything on CD-ROM. And CD-ROM has like 600, 700 megabytes. Ooh. You can fit so much information on that. I can. <laughs> Lots of information. How do you even fill 700 megabytes? I don't know. Somehow I filled this six gigabyte hard drive I had. (laughs) Yeah, but in a time when computers did not have hard drives, most computers didn't. I mean, they existed, but most computers did not come equipped with one. So most people's entire experience was at the most 1.44 megabyte floppy disks with a few people being maybe lucky enough to have a 40 megabyte hard drive or something. The idea that you can have a an optical media that can store 650, 750, whatever megabytes of data on it, enough that you can actually have sound and pictures and maybe even video, was just a huge deal. And so many people saw it as the wave of the future. And of course, it wasn't because you needed the internet to make it work. But Philips was very committed to this. They knew they needed games. It's been true time and time again throughout history. Every time a company embarks on a major interactive technological platform, they think it's going to be about something else that's loftier, like education or balancing your checkbook or storing your recipes, as if people were going to store their recipes on a trash 80 computer back in the early 1980s. I need that computer in the kitchen so that i can look up my recipe on how to make bread uh no exactly but there's always kind of these lofty ideas and then they're like and i guess we'll do some games too and then what happens is the games end up being the only thing that sells because these early computers these early multimedia platforms these early whatever aren't really powerful enough to do all of those other business and productivity things people want them to do but they are powerful enough to play games Also, I would contend that you still need the internet. The fact that I can sit in my kitchen, pull out my phone, pull out my laptop, pull out my tablet, and go, I need a recipe for X. And then I get instantly a bunch of different recipes, maybe some video to go with it on how to prepare it. Exactly. Maybe I can get suggestions on some product to buy to make making said item easier. You really need the internet for that to work. Exactly. They're always going on about this, but they always realize they need the games too. So CDI is a terrible game machine. What I mean is it is not in its architecture is not in any way conducive to doing games. And Philips really doesn't have any interest in doing games, but they realize they need games. After a while, Philips Interactive Media, the company that's responsible, the the subsidiary of Philips that's responsible for bringing this all to market, realizes that they don't really have any decent games. They've kind of had some teams working on games internally and externally, but they don't really have much. So they need to find some more people that can work on games for them. One of the main guys in Europe who is responsible for sourcing new game content for what at this time is the still under development CDI is a guy named Jean-Claude LaRue. And it just so happens that Mr. Jean-Claude LaRue is friends since childhood with a fellow named René Bonnell. 
Hmm. Rene Bonnell happens to be the uncle of our friend Bruno Bonnell. So Rene learns that Jean-Claude is looking for game programmers for the CDI, game content providers. And so he's like, oh, you should really talk to my nephew Bruno. He does that kind of thing. This is the beginning of what ends up being easily the most important relationship in Infogram's history. Because Philips Interactive Media, through LaRue here, comes in and hires them to create CDI content, is paying them for that. They also introduce them to other companies that are creating CDI content, including one old French company called Parthay that is very well off financially. As I said before, banks are generally refusing to invest in Infogram. Infogram is not able to get the lines of credit it needs to grow as a company because it's, it's just seen as this small little nothing in a strange new industry. Because of the Phillips connection with Parthay, Bonnell is able to convince Parthay to invest in Infogram. And Parthay is an old company. It goes back to 1896. It is a well-established entertainment company and technology company in France. So now that Philips, big Dutch conglomerate, is taking an interest, and Parthay, this other French company, is taking an interest, suddenly other companies, other banks, other investors are paying attention to Infogram, and they're able to start getting investment. They're actually able to start getting other people to invest. And this culminates with the company actually being able in 1993 to go public. So now the financial situation is starting to stabilize because of this Phillips connection. And eventually, LaRue will even become the chairman of the board of Infogram after he leaves Phillips. So, I mean, this, this is a very important connection. And it all happens because the guy in France charged with looking for entertainment content for the CDI happens to be the childhood friend of Bruno Bonnell's uncle. It's kind of amazing how these little connections lead to major breaks for so many people in life. Mm -hmm. So that is a very important part of what's going on. The other important thing that is going on at the exact same time is that Infogram has its very first massive, with a capital M, massive international hit in 1992. And that, of course, is the survival horror game Alone in the Dark. Alone in the Dark was the brainchild of a programmer at Infogram named Frédéric Reynal. Reynal was one of these computer programming prodigy types, which drove so much of especially the European market. I mean, drove the American market some as well, but in Europe, that was a really big thing, these kind of teenage wunderkind type of programmers. His father actually owned a computer shop, computer store called Videomatique. So Frédéric actually worked in his father's store and was immersing himself in programming and becoming fascinated with these machines and programming on these machines and was just programming nonstop. Uh, he was programming so much it was almost unhealthy, <laughs> spending too much time in front of the computer coding. I mean, he was just a natural at it and he just really enjoyed it. 
right before he went off for his compulsory military service after he was a little older, he decided to create a simple breakout clone called Popcorn. It it was basically just breakout, but uh, under the name Popcorn. And because he didn't think it was much of a thing, you know, it was just because Breakout's an old game and he's just doing the simple adaptation and there's not much substance to it. He decides to just release it for free, just put it out in the public domain and then goes off to do his uh, compulsory military service. Well, because it's free and because it's very well made, Popcorn breaks out, no pun intended, hugely in France. All the magazines are reviewing it and saying this game is fantastic and guess what? It's free. I mean, if it had cost 40 bucks, would anyone have wanted to buy something like that? Probably not. But as a free game that anyone can enjoy and is very well done, it gathers a whole lot of attention. And so suddenly when he's coming back uh, out of the army, when his service is ending, he is getting offers from all sorts of French companies to be part of their firm. He is now a very highly in demand young programmer. He wasn't on Bruno Bonnell's radar, Frederic Reynal, but there was a programmer uh, at Infogram named Laurent Samoron, who had created an RPG called Draken that became a fairly big hit in like 1989, 1990, somewhere around there in France. He was aware of Reynal. And so he told Bonnell, hey, you got to hire this guy, Renal, who's now available because he's coming out of the military. And because Salmeron had just created this uh, hit RPG, Bonnell decided that, you know, his opinion really mattered. He clearly knows what he's talking about. And so he decided to hire Renal into Infogram. One of the first projects that Renal did when he was at the company was actually porting a game called Alpha Waves to the PC. Alpha Waves, uh, which was released in some Western countries as Continuum, is a game that has been pretty much forgotten, but it is incredibly important to the development of three-dimensional polygonal games because it was, may well have been, you hesitate to ever use this was the first of this or this was the first of that because there's always some obscurity that (laughs) beat you to the punch. But if it was not the first, it was one of the very first 3D platform games using polygonal graphics. It came about, in a way, almost by accident. The individual who created the game was a programmer named Christophe de Dinchin. I'm sure I horribly mangled that last name. so sorry, je suis désolé <laughs> the pronunciation of my French here and there. He was really impressed by a game called Starglider 2. Starglider 2 was a British game created by uh, the company Argonaut and by its founder and main programmer, uh, Jez Son. Argonaut is most famous today for being the company that created the Super FX chip and created in conjunction with Nintendo, the game Star Fox. Jez Son is a brilliant, brilliant programmer. And he was one of the first computer game programmers that cracked creating a fully 3D polygonal 
game. Because creating polygonal graphics is such a drain on hardware because you have to draw all of these vertices and you have to have your X, Y, and your Z axis on everything. It is such a mathematically intensive process that even though you could theoretically do this on early computers, particularly once the 16-bit computers like the Atari ST and the Amiga came along, it would be so processor intensive that you wouldn't be able to do much else. So you'd have nothing on the screen, and what you did have on the screen would be going like three frames per second. So, you know, that's no good. But Son was able to use programming tricks to make Star Glider work. It wasn't the very first game to have flat-shaded polygons on a home computer, but it was amongst the very first. It was a pretty big breakthrough. And uh, Dedeshin was very impressed by that. And as all pro- good programmers do when they find something they're impressed about, they're like, wow, that's amazing. Now I want to figure out how he did it and then make something better. So that's what he does. He starts creating his own polygonal engine to, uh, to create his own game. And Star Glider is a flying game. Uh, you know, it's, it's very similar to Star Fox in that sense. So that's the kind of game that Dedeshin... I know I'm horribly mispronouncing that name, <laughs> but uh, our friend here, Kristoff, uh, we'll use his first name, Kristoff <laughs> um, starts out creating a flying game as well, but he's creating a flying game that has more objects on the screen, that takes up more of the screen, because the window where the action's taking place in, in Star Glider is relatively small in terms of the entire screen real estate, because then you don't have to draw as much of the screen and it's faster. So his goal is to make a similar game but one where the 3D action takes up more of the screen, there are more objects on the screen at the same time, and it moves at a faster frame rate. So basically do kind of the same thing, but better. And he figures it out. He does it. Um, He uses various programming tricks to speed up the math and make it so that it's viable. It's still not super fast. I mean, his goal is 10 frames per second, but it's fast for the time when pushing 3D graphics. He discovers as he's playtesting it It's just a flying game. You're dodging these cubes in space and whatnot. He has it set up for whatever reason that your ship, if you get to the edges of the screen, kind of bounces off the edge of the screen, you know, bounces back. And he realizes, hey, you know, this bouncing thing is really kind of cool. So maybe instead of having a flying game, I'll have a game where you're bouncing around the screen. And he kind of thinks about the Smurfs who bounce around on mushrooms. Uh, you know, again, another, another comic book, another European comic book. All these guys are big into European comic books. He thinks about the Smurfs and the way they bounce from mushroom to mushroom. And he's like, I'll have a character that behaves kind of like a Smurf and all of these cubes I've got in space that your ship is supposed to dodge. Instead, I'll have you bounce off of those. And so you have this little character. He was even hoping maybe they could get a Smurf's license, so that never materialized. You have this little character that's bouncing all around the screen. That's the gimmick, and that's really never been done before. Alpha Waves is not much more than a tech demo, really. I mean, in terms of the amount of gameplay. It's fun because it's new. Nobody's done it before, but there's not much game there when you get right down to it. But it's fun enough that Frederic Renal decides that he really wants to port that to the PC. And this Alpha Waves game, even though it's a footnote today, is what gets Reynald to thinking, this 3D stuff is really cool, but I would like to refine this and actually create real characters, real animated 3D characters 
using this kind of polygonal technology because the character in Alpha Waves is not articulated. We'll put the game, of course, in the show notes. He's bouncing around the screen, but it's not like he's walking around. He's a very abstract figure. Ray Nall is inspired by this game to say, I want to create characters using these polygonal graphics. And so he starts fiddling around with creating um, 3D characters, polygonal characters. And at the same time this is going on, Bruno has had this idea for a game where light becomes a central focus of the game. It's kind of meant to be a horror game. They've recently gotten the Cthulhu license from Chaosium, the company that creates the Call of Cthulhu RPG. So they're thinking in terms of some kind of horror thing. Bruno comes up with this idea that you're controlling a character in a pitch black space and you have a limited number of matches in your possession. So you can strike a match to see your surroundings for a little bit of time till that match, you know, naturally goes out after just a few seconds. And so you're kind of balancing, you know, trying to remember what's on the screen and kind of balancing your match inventory and, and how much light you can have. And, you know, it's a game about really surviving in the darkness. So the, the working title on this becomes In the Dark. Reynal is a great fan of zombie movies, of horror movies, of George Romero, Dawn of the Dead and all of that. When he was working in his father's store, his father also did stuff with video cassettes. So when he was at the store, he would watch all of these old kind of zombie movies and whatnot. That was a big kind of draw for him. He saw an opportunity to take this in the dark concept that Bonell has kind of come up with and merge in some of the 3D work he's doing and to create this kind of horror game. So he asks to be put on this project as, as the lead on this In the Dark project, and, and Bruno lets him be on it. He knows that it has to be more of an adventure game than an action game because of the limitations. He's got these characters that he's able to kind of draw now, but he can't have too many of them on the screen at once because we're still talking about a period when the processing power is just not there to render a lot of objects on the screen. So he knows it's going to be more of an exploration-based game with only a small number of encounters with a small number of creatures. He wants them to be zombies because of this kind of horror thing that, that he has. And he decides that it has to be set in an earlier period of time because he doesn't want to deal with the complexities that modern technology would add to his 3D engine. If you have electric lights, you have to do shadows and lighting in a certain way that is just too complex, for instance. So he decides to set it in the 1920s so that he can get around some of that modern technology that would just be a pain to do in game form. He and, and the people he's working with come up with this character creator. They also come up with this camera system that basically allows a camera to follow you around in a wireframe 3D space. Because of the processor intensity, again, the fact that this stuff takes way too much processing power to do, he can't create a fully articulated 3D world 
where you can just move around wherever you want and do whatever you want. It has to be a fixed camera angle so that you're not recalculating all the time. And so that's how you get this kind of what becomes the standard, what remains the standard way of doing these kinds of games for years to come, where you have a 3D polygonal character that's walking around, that's moving around. You have fixed camera angles. As you move around, the the angle may shift as you move to a different part of the room, but fixed camera angles of the space that you're in. And then instead of these spaces being true 3D, they cheat by creating a wireframe outline that tells you where like all the obstacles are. If there's a pillar, you know, the pillar will be rendered in wireframe. So if you hit where that wireframe is, you know, you have collision detection and you have to walk around the pillar or whatever, or the doorframe. But then over top of this wireframe, you put a two-dimensional image that is pre-rendered and gives it a look of depth, even though the picture is 2D. So there's a 3D wireframe with a 2D bitmap on top of it and a fixed camera angle. And when you put those three things together, what you get is a space that looks like a 3D space in which you can move around in like it's a 3D space, even though it's largely 2D. We've uh, covered this sort of before with Final Fantasy VII Mm -hmm. and how it looked. And you see this with a lot of the same kind of games in the PlayStation era, Mm -hmm. where you had Resident Evil, you had a fixed sort of camera thing, and it could pan left and right, but you couldn't really move in the 3D space. And you had the character move around from your fixed vantage point, which led to untold death because... Well, how am I supposed to see that zombie that's off camera over there that's eating my face? I I don't know. It's happening. My face is gone now, and I have to start over again. <laughs> but, yeah, it's arguably a really unique art form that mm-hmm. was really beautiful in a way, and at least in my mind, was superior to a lot of the early true 3D graphics where you had everything truly polygonal and you could move around and see everything, but the graphic fidelity was a lot less. And I was going where you had this thing before where I had this like (laughs) full textured thing here. And here you are showing me this shaded thing with low res polygons. (laughs) No, right. It's, and we did, we did have this, this very same conversation before, as you said, there was this period of time where, You knew the world had to go 3D because 3D was the future, but you couldn't get as much detail out of 3D just because of the processing power you would need to render that stuff. And so you had this period of time where you had this, uh, it's not technically called 2.5D, but I'm just going to call it that for the purposes of our conversation, this 2.5D world where you're combining the new techniques of polygonal rendering with the old techniques of bitmap drawing to come up with something that's not quite fully 3D, but is not fully 2D and can actually in some ways accomplish more than than either one individually could do at that time. Obviously, as 3D rendering devices became more powerful and dedicated GPUs became more powerful, 
you could get that same level of detail in a fully 3D space, but it took a long time to get there. So as you said, the very early games that went full 3D, they just don't have that same level of detail. So they take this 2.5D concept and implement it for Alone in the Dark. Exactly. And at first he was hoping to use pictures of a real mansion and digitize them in order to do this and and put them over top of that wireframe. That ended up not being viable just because again it would it would be too much memory, you know, high quality digitized scans. So they end up doing it with pixel art instead. They end up doing the bitmaps. So you get this survival horror genre they don't call it survival horror. Capcom invents the term survival horror when they're marketing Resident Evil. But you get this survival horror genre basically coming into existence all at once. I mean, occasionally someone will say, well, Sweet Home from Capcom was a little bit like a survival horror game, or this game was a little like a survival horror game. And there are certainly games that used horror settings and scare tactics before Alone in the Dark did. It's not the very first to do it. But this is the first game that really has all of those qualities that we would now consider to be the qualities of a survival horror game. And most of that, quite frankly, came down to the limitations of the hardware is why you get that genre. Why are you having to face just a small number of monsters at once that you often have to run away from because you're not strong enough to fight them? Because you can't have too many monsters on the screen at the same time. So you have to have a way to make interacting with just a small number of monsters interesting. Why do you have strange camera angles that are perfect for creating jump scares? Because with the processing power of the time, you can't do a fully free-flowing camera. You have to have fixed camera angles. And so that creates these situations where you're suddenly at an odd angle and you can't figure out where the monster is. All of this stuff is kind of born more than anything out of the limitations of the hardware. So Alone in the Dark comes out in 1992, and it is huge. It sells millions worldwide. It is a huge game. It's really the first time that anyone has paid attention to Infogram outside of France. Now, I'm not saying that their games didn't go outside of France before. Captain Blood, for instance, certainly did. But this is their first massive worldwide success and it makes them a lot of money so you've got the alone in the dark money coming in you have the phillips relationship and the ability to finally get some investment from outside coming in you have the ipo in 1993 that is building off of this success of alone in the dark and this relationship with phillips and other cdi related companies coming in so suddenly, Infogram has a lot of money. They also do an NES Asterisk game, the comic book character Asterisk, that sells half a million copies, that becomes a big hit in Europe. So that's another thing that's feeding in. Suddenly, Bruno Bonell has the cash he needs to be the big dog in this European gaming scene. This is kind of the point, 93, 94 in there where Infogram begins its truly meteoric rise that will ultimately end in its tragic collapse, which is where we will pick up the story in part two of our rise and fall of Infogram. All right. So we had to build up. We have ignition. We're about to have blast off of Infogram. 
and we'll see that next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com where we have linked to some of the things that we discussed in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. You can email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com and follow us on Twitter at TCW Podcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward, found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Rolla Music, found at freemusicarchive.org, used under a Creative Commons attribution license.